Welcome to the Pints and Polishing Podcast, the most influential and listened to podcast in auto detailing. Welcome to the community. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Pints and Polishing Podcast. This is Nick. You can find us at the HyperClean Specialist Group on Facebook, where I shared actually quite a bit from this week. HyperClean store if you want to check out our products, but let's get into it this week. Pretty pretty awesome week. Got to see some cool cars, got to consult on some restoration projects, so I want to share some stories from this week. And I got to start with a Mercedes story. So I have a customer that we're helping purchase a, uh, an EQS through Mercedes. It's been kind of a show. Well, the car's here. And so one of the craziest things when cars arrive is, is kind of how deal different dealerships do it different ways. Some are really great. Some aren't. It is what it is. It's, it's not something to get into today, but here's a crazy story. So Mercedes corporate is now involved in this story. And I'm on the phone this week for like an hour with a Mercedes representative from the actual corporate office, because evidently they released her car with all the brand new stuff from the brand new model year, but they don't want that model year out on the road yet, even though it looks like the old model year of EQS. And so we are in limbo where my customer is paid in full for the car and the car is not being released from the dealership until Mercedes corporate says it can be. It's a wildest story I've been involved in in the pandemic so far, because here's the crazy thing. You released the car. And so when you're talking to this corporate executive, what you realize, they don't really have a reasoning. They, the car evidently got out of their hands accidentally. They didn't want it at the dealership. It was supposed to be in distribution, you know, in their facility. It's not, it got let out. Now they're not going to release it to us. So one of the more interesting stories, but what it shows is that there's also not exactly a one-to-one -one example of we have some big problem with the supply chain. Some companies do and some don't. And some companies are causing the issues by all these rules that they're instilling inside their company. Now, most of this stuff is going to work itself out long-term, but it's just amazing that here you have a client that's paid six figures for a car. She wants to pick the car up. She's a great customer. She's bought about a billion Mercedes and they can't do it right. And so now the dealership is basically like, hey, don't even come over here and pick this car up. We think we'll be picking up Monday of next week, but even that is up in the air. So here we go. We got all these people involved, and you're sitting in a position where you look around and go, it's always astonishing to me that the car business continues to make so much money because they all the time shoot themselves in the foot with random rules, random markups, random things, manufacturer issues. And I looked around this week after I got off the phone call and I go, it didn't matter what question I asked. They never really had an answer other than we're not going to release the car. And it's our car. Technically they're wrong because the car is paid for. Uh, the car is now in Las Vegas and they make some big rule of how they don't want this specific car on the road just yet. You kind of shake your head and you go, I wonder what could happen in the car business to get this thing back on track or headed in a new way or what kind of disruption. You know, everybody thinks it's going to be a company like Carvana, but they're headed towards bankruptcy, as we said last week. 
I just don't know how to deal with the stupidity sometimes. And you just have to kind of shrug your shoulders and you have two options. We can cancel the sale, get our money back legally, or you have to play by their rules to get the car. Now this particular client doesn't care about the money. So she's going to wait on the car. If it were me or you, we'd probably have canceled the sale, but everybody's in a different financial position and everybody has a different thing. And she's got a bunch of cars and she doesn't really care. But even a brand like Mercedes, who tends to get it right a lot of the times, I've had a few things in my career they've gotten really wrong. I had a G-Wagon incident where they had all kinds of leaking issues on one of my client's driveways. He was a pretty powerful guy. That's the only reason they rectified it, but he had to get on the phone and threaten them. They are weird when you get to these higher corporate levels as a company to deal with. But I can't say that they're alone. I've had the same things with BMW. I've had the same things uh, with a lot of different manufacturers. And I thought it was kind of a strange story that here we are. Supply is not a problem on this car. But now we have an issue that they don't want this specific year out on the road yet because this is the newest car that you can get from them. And you got to wait until we're comfortable to release it to the public. I don't even know how you'd tell year to year. They look identical to me. So that was my argument. There's nobody that's going to know. Uh, but evidently, they thought the boogeyman was going to know and tell everybody. And uh, my customer would be lucky to put 2,500 miles on this car. It, you know, it's not this serious. It was actually going to sit for two or three weeks anyway. It was going to come to the shop and be under lock and key. Couldn't convince them. So we've, we, we finished in this weird area that they'll let us know when we can pick up the vehicle that we paid for. I think it's just a fun story to share and kind of stupid that you're dealing with this. But, you know, tales from the car world here to start the podcast. If you go to the HyperClean Specialist Group, I put a couple of pictures in there from this week. I went and saw a Lamborghini Diablo, a Lexus LFA, and a slant, slant nose 1993 Porsche. The Porsche is the real story here because it's going to be coming in for a restoration and it's already been through a pretty hard life. This car actually caught fire. A bag at a Cars and Coffee got sucked up into the engine, caught the engine on fire, completely decimated the engine and the complete underneath of the car. Here's the wildest thing. All the paint on the exterior of the car is original. The interior of the car has no signs of any trouble and is actually in reasonable condition for this car and what it's been through. But here was the crazy thing that the shop owner that I know did everything to the spec of Porsche to restore this car, ordered the bolts from Porsche, the wiring from Porsche, the engine, everything is done through Porsche because he wanted to restore. It. And I think he told me it was about a two or three year project uh, to do this all the right way. And so one of the interesting parts when you talk to somebody like this is, his passion is not cars, and he told me this when we we're talking about this Porsche. He goes, I just love building these things. But once it's right, and he went and he restored all of the underneath paint and, and different things that go on under there to the spec of Porsche, this car, by all standards, is a restored car. Now, honestly, he's going to have to reveal that this car caught fire. I understand that. But everything that can be made original, has been put back to original form and function and, and how it would have left the factory. So this is a restoration project, but it's a project where originality has mattered to the owner and to the shop that did the restoration work. This guy's one of the top Porsche people in the world, and here we are. So now it comes time to finish the project. 
He called a body shot buddy of his because he's an old school guy. That's what he does. He gets really worried about what they tell him. Look, you guys know what he told him. They're going to churn it and burn it with a wool pad and compound, and it's going to be everywhere. You're going to have stuff in the cracks and crevices. You're going to have overspray everywhere. We know what happens at the body shop. So that doesn't put the shop owner in a good mood. And evidently, he gets a lead to a quote-unquote great shop in town. Now, I will say this. This shop does reasonable work, uh, but they've been trained in the new school, so it doesn't put him at ease. So what did this shop tell him? The shop told him that they would do a two-step correction, and they pointed out spots where they would actually wet sand the car. For a guy that's just put three years into this, that didn't put his mind at ease. And then to top it off, we're going to put it, slather it in a ceramic coating. Now, this is a 1993 slant nose Porsche. That does not fit with this car and the belief system that you should have. So he asked me to stop by and he runs through the car and what he did. And we go through the pictures and I put his mind at ease with one word. This is a preservation detail. He's like, well, what's that mean? I said, look, what don't you want? He's like, well, because I did all this stuff underneath the car, I'm scared of it. I don't want all of this stuff to get wet and start having a problem or the customer not be able to see it in its original form. I said, easy enough. In a rest restorative detail, a lot of times we'll use steam to clean the vehicle because gaskets are an issue or whatever, and it could leak in and it could, it could cause problems long-term. So I've done a lot of these types. So it's just... We won't introduce anything but steam. We're not going to have any pressure washing or anything like that. I can see him take a deep breath. I said, secondarily, this car does not need a massive paint correction. It needs a restorative one-step correction. We'll lightly polish the surface. We'll take away any oxidation. We'll remove as many of the defects as we can safely remove with that one step. But you won't have polishes in the crash, cracks and crevices, and we won't be taking very much paint off of the car. And finally, we won't be putting a ceramic coating on this car. We'll be putting a natural wax on it to protect the finish, and that's it. He goes, okay, well, the interior. I said, A, we're not going to shampoo the interior. These kind of cars have a, a tendency to hold that smell of wet extraction. We'll steam clean the interior. We'll bring the seats back to life with a little conditioning naturally. We'll call it a day. It's a clean, restorative detail where we leave everything as original as we can to preserve the life of this car. The car is going to be at the shop in the next few weeks. That's the plan. He's got some work to do, so that could be pushed back. How did I put this guy's mind at ease? Because I was taught to preserve cars. One of the things that's frustrated me about what you would call the new age style of detailing is it's churning and burning and cut all the paint off and sand every surface and slap coating on everything. And it's just a one size fits all from top to bottom. And I call it really kind of entered the business in the last five to seven years when you had coding companies training people. That's just the fact of it. When I was taught to detail cars, because we used rotaries, we had a healthy respect for you can actually damage the car pretty easily. So you need to enter the car as a restorative process, but also preserving the car and making sure that this paint system lasts the life of the car. And that's how I was taught. 
Uh, I was taught wet sanding techniques. I, I actually dry sanded cars before. Uh, I was taught to paint cars, which I never really took to. I was taught how to block cars. I was taught all of these really crazy things we see people bragging about now. But one of the things that I learned was don't do these things if it's not going to preserve the car. And so the reason that I got into this rest restoration world long before uh, I owned my company was because I always had a healthy respect for the car. So when you work with really great car collectors, they don't like that churn them and burn them BS. Two-step correction and take everything within an inch of its life. They're, they're not just not going to do it. Really great collectors have a healthy respect for the car. And they want to preserve the car. They want to enjoy it. They want to drive it. But they want to preserve the car for the next person that owns it. And they hope that that car is in terrific shape for the next 100 years. Those are the best collectors I ever worked with. I've worked with some jerks before that want to churn them and burn them, but I just refuse to do it. And if they wanted me to touch the car and I wasn't going to wet sand every inch of it, then they can go somewhere else. And I've had those projects happen. I actually had two projects that I thought about when, when I was thinking about this episode where I did a restoration detail on the car, a restoration pr preservation detail, let's just call it. And I had two separate guys get mad about the finished result. And they wanted this scratch and that scratch and whatever taken out. One was actually pretty egregious on a Ferrari. And so it's all good. I said, hey, man, I'm just not going to do that kind of work. You know, if you want to take that to somebody else and you want to do those types of things, I'm just not going to do an irresponsible thing to this vehicle. This is my opinion. Sorry you feel that way. Twice I had cars enter into the repaint booth because they went to someone else and they, that person chased those scratches or those, those marks and sanded that part of the vehicle and completely damaged it. And the car had to be repainted in one instance, cost the guy quite a bit of money and value. When he called me back, he apologized. The other guy I've never heard from again, but I don't want to do business with people like that. So why do I bring up this story? Again, you can go to the specialist group and see these cars, but I bring this story up because I wish one thing we agreed on in detailing, and I don't have every answer for that. What the things that ail detailing as a whole, I'm just not that smart, but I do have one thing that I wish was the case is that we thought of everything through the preservation mindset. I shouldn't see people wet sanding on GMC trucks and Toyota Tundras and Honda Civics. And that's my opinion. Those people can do what they want, but it's really not defensible because you're going to see those cars in a repaint booth faster than ever before. And one of the interesting things is, is that as paint systems get thinner, and we've had several people share in the group with 2.1, you know, 2.5 mils only from the factory, when that number used to be four and a half to five. And we complain about it, but we don't talk about preservation. We still have people churning and burning paint systems. I don't understand it. Not at all, actually, because I wasn't, I, I just don't have that belief. I don't have a belief that I need to wet sand a GMC truck. I'm, I'm not certain who that serves other than you, the detailer, who's making money off of it. Because more than likely, the first time that truck gets washed, it's going to be scratched up. That's why. It just doesn't serve anything except for you to show something on social media. I'm all good with it. It's a great that people have that skill, but it's not a preservation mindset. And those people largely never get to work on truly valuable cars. Now, what do I mean by that? 
if you have a muscle car that's been shot for SEMA and it's got, you know, 15 mils of paint on it, so to speak, and you can sand it, I have no issue with that. That's a great use of the skill. But largely, that's the most valuable vehicles they'll continue to work on because that's where the skill set fits, which is fine by me. But the reality that you have to face is, is that if you want to really get into restorative and preservation type detail, you know, guys down in Florida that I know, some different people around the country that are very heavy into this world, Ferrari, Porsche, whatever, reality is you can't churn and burn paint systems because it could be a million dollar, $2 million, $3 million mistake, $300,000 mistake. So why not just carry that throughout detailing? I'm not sure. I never really kind of understood why we have flocked to this crazy paint correction world when everything's going in the opposite direction. Manufacturers are not going to go back to five mil paint systems. So we're just going to keep churning and burning paint. And all of a sudden that GMC is being repainted within 10 years of it coming out of the factory. And then we're going to blame the factory. Well, if they had put more, well, no, some jerk churned and burned the paint system because he wanted to show you on social media he could remove all the defects. And let me give people something that I had to learn pretty quick, that burning down a paint system and then polishing it out to perfection is not the highest level that I've seen people operate. Because once you know how to cut down a paint system and then finish it out, you pretty much have the skill set. Guys that can finesse a lot out of, hey, I want to leave a bunch of paint here on something that doesn't have a bunch of paint, and I still want to make it look good, and I still want to remove as many defects as possible, but I'm towing that fine line, that takes a lot more skill long term. That's why I've advocated most young guys getting into this business. Be the best one-step complete correction guy that you can be. Those other skills are great. But largely, people that sand vehicles and massive two-step corrections, they don't make the kind of money you think they make. Most of those people can never scale their business. Most Most of those people don't have a dollar to their name. And I have examples of people calling me and telling me that. It's great to have those skills in our industry. I'm all for it. When it fits, and it fits in a very small number of cars. But if you get a 1993 Porsche and you're telling somebody you're going to wet sand the original paint system, it just seems kind of odd to me. It seems misguided because that's not preserving that car that's already been through a traumatic life, that you already have a shop owner that really doesn't know anything about this paint system. And what you're telling him is you're going to churn it and burn it. So as a detailing community, we almost lost this guy, this elite level shop, because he talked to somebody in the detailing industry, again, who runs a good shop here in Vegas. But that guy just doesn't have the skill set to understand preservation because where he comes from is slather it in coating, two-step correction, get every defect out. Well, that's not a preservation mindset. And again, people can disagree with me, but largely those people have never worked on a car that if something happens to the original paint, you could be making a $2 million mistake. Go talk to people that have worked on extremely valuable cars and look how their preservation mindset is. They are not churn it, sand every inch, rotary the whole thing, put a light on it. They're not those guys, man. 
They're not. They're a very different breed. And if you want to grow your business and you want to be able to do this kind of work, you can start on a Honda Civic. Am I going to preserve the paint system? How do I get as many defects out, leaving the most paint that I can? How can I give my customer a great result with doing the responsible thing? I don't care what car it is. I don't care if it's a mom van. I don't care. I've always had a preservation mindset. And that's what I can share. I don't land this project if I have any other mindset, period, end of story. If I don't understand that I can tell this guy, we don't need a pressure washer. We can get the car clean. We can get it set up. We can do the things we need to do. But I'm going to leave you with one thing today that's come across my desk quite a bit in the last few weeks because 95% of my day is meetings, phone meetings, in-person meetings, Zoom meetings. That's just my life, which is great. You know, I'm very grateful for where I'm at. The smartest people you'll do business with, the smartest people in your family, the friends that you'll end up respecting the most have one thing in common. They ask questions. One of the things that I find has come across SEMA then the week, weeks after is that it's very easy for me to tell you that the biggest mistake I made, 25-year-old Nick, was I didn't ask enough questions. I thought I knew everything. We can see it in Facebook groups. We can see it on forums. We can see it on Instagram posts and reels and TikTok, and everybody just knows everything. So I'm going to share a couple things here that I made mistakes in my career because I didn't ask questions. I just thought I knew everything. At the time I was 25, I detailed my first car when I was 16. That's nine years in. I knew everything, right? Nah, not really. I didn't know I, I, I didn't know anything. One of the things I'll say is the most healthy way to go into this talk is to say, the best advice I can give is to know what you don't know. And that's the majority of everything. I mean, none of us know everything. None of us know a whole bunch, right? We know a tiny bit of a tiny bit. But one of the craziest things that happens is we, we work with content creators and we talk to people around detailing. So I'm going to share a story that's kind of crazy. So content creators will reach out to HyperClean and they'll be like, hey, we'd love to make videos with you and this and that. And that's great, man. I love that. I, if you're a content creator, always reach out. Let me give a piece of advice. We have not had a single content creator reach out and ask questions. We've had content creators reach out and tell us how great they are and tell us what we don't understand and tell us about their community of people and why they're so great. And, hey, you should pay me thousands of dollars. Cool, man. I'm all for rewarding people that get results. But they never ask us about our business. They never ask about the other 50% of the relationship. They just know everything. It's been kind of eye-opening for me. Most of those people are young guys, so there's no judgment on my part. But there's a crazy thing that we have in the culture of detailing. It's probably the culture of everything is nobody ever asks a question. Well thought out questions will get you information, which will get you what you want. So let me use it in your business. In your sales process as an owner, how many questions do you ask when you pick up the phone? If I ask my customer, every, every new customer, 20 questions, and you ask every new customer three questions, 
I'm going to get infinitely more sales than you. That's just a psychological thing that we know about sales, that the more I get a customer talking about what they want, and the more questions that I ask, the more well-suited I am to discuss the solutions I have for them. So if you look at your sales process, do you have 10 really thorough questions you ask everybody, or do you have two? If you have two, you don't have enough. And if you have 10, can you add more? Or do you have the perfect number? Are you closing at a high rate? But the sales process is completely determined by questions. The more questions and the better questions you ask, the more sales you're going to get. Me as well. It's amazing how that happens, that when I ask people questions, I actually learn something. Let's get back to the content creator. So we had this story where this guy was hell-bent that he had all this value to bring, which is great. I'm all for people's confidence. So he goes, I'll do X number of posts, and you guys, uh, you know, uh, my community of people do this, and we'll do that, and uh, yeah, 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 th this is what will happen. We go, oh, man, awesome. Would you like to know about the products we're going to send you? Oh, no, man, I'm good. I, I I'll use them. I get them. Think about that. That's a wild thing to say to two owners of a chemical company that you don't even want to hear a five-minute spiel on the products we're sending to you. You don't even want to get educated on them. We had an incident where a guy made a great video about our glass cleaner. He could DM us, text us, call us, email us, whatever way he wanted to get a hold of us to get a two-minute briefing of our glass cleaner. So then he goes out and he says, this is a great, great glass cleaner for the exterior of your glass because it has protection in it. Well, we wouldn't make a glass cleaner you couldn't use on the interior. I mean, no, any of you listening to us know that. But think about what that guy didn't do. He didn't take the five seconds to ask us a question. Hey, man, I know this has protection in it. Can I use it on the interior glass? Yeah, man, it's a, it's a, it's a glass cleaner that's on the next level. This is why we did it. Yes, it adds a little bit of protection. It's safe on tint. It's safe on your interior. You're going to get streak-free. He could have gotten the spiel in all of two seconds of a DM. But he goes on camera, creates content, and it's not about whether he has it right for his people. It's just about saying whatever he feels like. Nobody's going to make a glass cleaner that's just for the exterior. Common sense tells you that. So he just made it up out of thin air. It's his channel. He's allowed to do what he wants. So this goes to the word question. When you heard that, if you listened to it, would you hit stop and go, I don't think this makes sense. There's another question. When somebody tells you they're a millionaire, how do millionaires act? Doesn't mean that they got to wear the biggest watch or drive the best car or whatever. But they're certainly not going to hold a party in a dark dungeon. Did you ask yourself? Did you question it and go, ah, does this make sense? The word question has been great for me the last couple of weeks because what I realized is all the people that we're getting into businesses with and that we really respect ask a ton of questions. We answer them and then we ask questions of them. Hey, do you do this? Hey, do you provide that? Hey, what are you doing here? This all sounds really freaking simple, but I'm telling you the amount of times that Marty and I get reached out to or things in my VR business 
of people that just never ask a question and assume they know everything is the most wild thing when you really look around. And I made a ton of mistakes in my career doing this, thinking I knew everything and I had everything ready to go. And how dare somebody question me? So take it from me. I've been there. But that's the path of no success. The most curious people that I'm around are somehow the most successful. The CEOs I had sit in my office during SEMA week actually apologized for how many questions they asked. Two different times, two different people, two different companies. They're CEOs of multinational companies asking an abundance of questions just to get more educated on the things that we do. Because they don't know our business and I don't know everything about their business. And so they ask 10 questions and I ask 10 questions and they ask another 10 questions and I ask another 10 questions. Sounds really simple. But also when you ask a question, it can't just be, give me the answer to the test. It's to get educated to then make your decision. We live in this world that so many people are frightened to talk about, which is in the detailing world, we got a lot of people telling you they know what the hell they're talking about. And if you just step back and go, huh, is that, he just said this and this is what I'm, does that fit? You could just throw it out. But we have so many people that follow people down into the abyss that they lose their business, they lose their process, they don't do things as efficiently as they could. And I get it because I've been there. Asking questions is the best advice I can give anybody. If you get somebody on the phone and you say, and they say, hey, I'd like to talk to you about my products and explain to what, and you go, nah, I'm good. Probably not going to be that beneficial of a relationship. It's probably not going to work out. If you have a sales process with two questions instead of 10 questions, it's probably not going to work out for you long-term because you can't really solve a customer's problem over just two simple questions. You have to get to know them. You have to get a rapport. You have to ask them what matters to them. What are you trying to accomplish? How long are you going to keep your car? What do you do with your car? How often do you drive your car? How many miles do you put on your car? I mean, you can just rattle off a ton of questions. So take it from me, one of the biggest mistakes and one of the things I've learned of, from my mistakes is today when I get on a phone call, I ask a lot of questions. And what I find is I get a lot of information. And when I get a lot of information, I can make a better decision. If I wanted to do business with really high-end dealership groups, I wouldn't call me, I'd call Marty. And I'd pick his brain to the end of the earth. Why? Because he's distributed products to those types of people. He's got more experience than me. That's what I would do. If we want to know about restorative detailing, I'd pick up the phone and I'd call me. And I'd ask 100 questions. That's what I would do. It's amazing, though, that that's not actually how it plays out in the real world. Is that everybody just kind of sits back and says, I know everything. And this is one of the proudest things about the specialist group. I think we have a healthy amount of questions in there. I think people do want to get better. I think we are fostering that a little bit in our network. But I know a lot of, a lot of people that listen 
they give me a lot of advice or shoot me a text message. And it's funny, I'll see their text message. And all it is, is them telling me what I should do. It's actually not a question. It's not to get more educated. It's like, hey, you know, did you guys do this? Should you guys do? And I'm going, where's the question? And it's nowhere to be found because they're not actually trying to get educated on the subject. They're trying to tell me why they're right. And take it from me, because I've done that a lot in my career early on. Trying to be right, there's no money in trying to be right. There's money in creating relationships and asking questions and getting more educated. I know this is kind of a convoluted subject, but the word questions has somehow popped its head in my life here the last few weeks. And when I look back, the most successful people I've met with, the most successful people I've talked to on the phone, the highest performing this or the highest performing that, they're all question-based when they talk to you. Hey, tell me about this. Hey, I saw this. Walk me through it. It's not vomiting at the mouth and telling me how much they know. So I wanted to share that today. I hope everybody has a great weekend. I think we're going to see you one more time before the Thanksgiving holiday. Everybody, you have a great day, great weekend. We'll talk to you next week.